If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one off the side of the tech booth back there. It's page 991 in that set uh, of Bibles back there. If you need to borrow a Bible for today, feel free to grab one of those. If you need to have a Bible because you don't have one that you can read um, or easily understand, it's a great great translation. So grab that, take it with you. It's our gift to you, and that is not a problem for you to take that with you, okay? Okay. Uh, just as we get started here, uh, brief, very brief survey. How many of you follow us on Facebook? How many of you follow Heritage Park on Facebook? How many of you saw the videos that came out this week about advice from dad? Um, that was one of the funniest things of my week, hands down. Because as I sent it out to um, people, just a few people, I mean, I just, I was thinking of people and as they'd come to mind, I just shoot them a text message or an email. Hey, what was the best advice uh, your dad ever gave you? Some of that came back. And by the way, there will be uh, at least three more videos come out this week with funny things that your dad had said. Uh, I also sent it to some uh, um, not church people, let's just say it that way, which ups the danger level significantly, especially when one of those people is my father-in-law. And uh, he, he sent back some, some more colorful than others, some fit for print and some not so much. Here's a couple, though, that he, just see if these rings true, okay? Good advice from dad. He said, don't mess with a guy who owns a wood chipper or a backhoe. That ring true to anybody? <laughs> On a slightly more serious note, uh, he said, uh, you need to remember this, that you're not as smart as you think you are. And you're not as dumb as you act. Seems pretty reasonable to me. Uh, the, the book of First Timothy is is um, a little bit like that, which is why we kind of went with that theme for that promo stuff. But because Paul, as a spiritual dad, um, is speaking to Timothy, his spiritual son. In fact, in the first couple of verses, he kind of introduces us to that part of the relationship. The difference is, is that when you hear advice from dad as a four-year-old, you take that as command, right, um, to, uh, you know, pick up your room. Otherwise, you know, you'll get a spanking or whatever. When you hear it as a 14-year-old, you roll your eyes and be like, oh, dad. And as a 40-year-old, you take it in and possibly consider it or possibly not. Um, n- none of those are actually great ways to interact with what we're doing because we're not dealing with advice. We're dealing with revelation. See, God is letting, in, uh, letting us in on the conversation um, between him and Paul and Timothy. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write to Timothy to address some of the things that were going on in the church that Timothy was pastoring. Talk about that in just a second. But you and I get to, to listen in on what's going on. And so we don't need to hear this as advice because oftentimes, folks, if we're honest with one another, when we open the Bible, we go to it for advice for life. How do I treat this person? What am I supposed to do in this moment? And because it's advice, because we take it as advice, what do we do? Oh, well, I mean, that's a nice thought. That obviously doesn't apply in my situation, though. And we, we don't take it as something to follow and actually go and do. Versus, if this is the revelation of God to you and to me, if this is the very word of God preserved for you and for me and spoken um, to the church and to you and to me, then we need to hear it and we need to listen. Not because we're fearful of some punishment. Oh, if you don't do this, you're going to get a spanking. But because we know God and because he's spoken to us and because we need to follow what he says. So don't take this as advice. We get to listen in on some of this, but don't take it as advice. Take us Take this as revelation. So if you, again, if you have your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to start at the very first verse, get down through verse 11 today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, 
and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child, there is that son part, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, I want to set, because this is the first sermon in the series, I want to set this context up very briefly. Uh, and the first thing uh, that we need to understand about the context, just in verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine and so forth. And we'll talk about what all that means in just a second. Just quickly here. Uh, Timothy, uh, Timothy pastors in Ephesus. Okay, so Ephesus is a pretty major city in the Roman Empire. Uh, Paul had spent significant time there. There was a church of significant import um, there and influence there. Um, uh, the book of Ephesians had been written uh, to the church at Ephesus. And so we've got record here. And this is the, the important part here. Um, you know, Timothy pastors in Ephesus. So he's, he's stepping into something substantial there. But it's not just that he pastors in Ephesus. He's also pastoring a people that Paul had taught. Um, because Paul had spent a couple of years there, better, uh, better than a couple of years there. Um, you know, Paul had significant investment in these people, and they were, uh, you know, used to him, and they had uh, understood him, and they had related to him, and they had done what he had said, and so forth and so on. And now Timothy steps into that situation. And I got to be honest, I, I don't remember a uh, scenario in which this has happened to me. But if you've been around church, and certainly if you uh, uh, maybe you've heard some war stories like this, where new pastor comes in, uh, he you know, wants to do this, that, or the other, and the, the people sometimes pull him up, uh, take him to lunch, or, or sit down in his office, and they say something like, well, our old pastor didn't do it that way. Great, right? Just imagine if your old pastor was the Apostle Paul, right? So now that, that's the kind of scenario into which Timothy's stepping here, not some guy who was maybe beloved, or not some guy who, you know, could, could do this or that. Some guy who's the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's big shoes to fill. That's a tough act to follow. So Paul, uh, excuse me, Timothy pastors in Ephesus, and he's pastoring this people that Paul had taught, um, and even though, even though the church had not reached maturity yet. Uh, and then thirdly, under this, Timothy pastors a people who fell away, who fell away. And that's what he says in verse 3. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. There was something that had arisen. Some situation, and, and people had begun to spin this and turn this and, and shake, shape this to their own liking. And so they were beginning to fall away. And Paul had predicted this. It had only taken four years for this to happen, but Paul had predicted this in Acts 20. His last statement to the uh, Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, it says this. Oh, it's coming. There it is. There it is. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now just pause here. Anytime, if you're a shepherd, anytime there's a wolf, you're thinking, this is a bad, there's no such thing as a nice wolf, right? You're not going, oh, nice. That, that's not how that goes. If you're a shepherd, you're thinking, if there's a wolf, I need to deal with this. And so Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then listen from where it comes. Because Paul is speaking to the leadership of the church, the elder group, of the church. He's not speaking to just somebody on the outside, and he's not speaking to the congregation in general. He's speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he says, these fierce wolves are not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, from among whom? 
the elders, the leaders of the church, from among this leadership group will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And guess what happened? Fierce wolves came among the flock, and from among their own cells, uh, men rose up and spoke twisted things. And so these people were falling away, just as Paul predicted, and it didn't, didn't take very long for that to happen, only about three or four years, depending upon exactly who you ask. I say that to say this, just I mean, put all this in context to say this. It's so important to watch our doctrine, to be careful about how we teach the Bible and what we teach in the Bible. It's so important because it doesn't take long for people to fall away. With all the cultural pressure and all the stuff that's going on the outside, there is an easy uh, uh, um, uh, path, if you will, for folks to walk away from church and truth and Jesus and all of that kind of stuff. So we have to be careful. Um, so now I want to take and really deal with these last two pieces. That is the content of what these people were saying and then the solution that, that, that Paul recommends uh, to Timothy. So uh, if you'll follow along here, I'm going to read verse 3 and then down through verse 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, <clears throat> nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Talk about the word speculations here. The content of what was being said was primarily about speculations. Um, speculations, as it says here, that were filled with uh, endless genealogies and myths. Uh, now, I don't know what happened in your Sunday school class. Uh, you know, probably didn't get to endless genealogies and myths. Uh, in, in this kind of setting, though, this is what would happen. They would have a group or maybe even a larger gathering, and there were these... Anybody familiar with the concept, or uh, maybe you've written or even uh, read fan fiction? Anybody? Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. Fan fiction. Come on. Okay. Fan fiction. Fan fiction goes something like this. Uh, Star Wars fans in here? Anybody? Okay, great, because I knew we'd get most of us. Uh, fan fiction goes something like this. Uh, you know, you get the whole Star Wars story and the, the saga and all that kind of stuff. Well, there's a note of interest where you're like, I wonder how so-and-so relates to so-and-so. And so you begin to think about that, and you write a story about it, and you put it on a blog or on a, uh, a forum somewhere, and that becomes fan fiction, right? It's just kind of this um, embellishment, oftentimes fanciful embellishment of all of this kind of stuff, taking the facts into consideration. This is what happened in Jewish life. In fact, there were multiple examples of this, one of which is called the Book of Jubilees, about 120 years before Jesus was born, where they went back to Genesis and Exodus, and they went through Genesis and Exodus and just had this kind of rewriting and this fanciful embellishment of all of this craziness. They took the genealogies and they were like, oh, well, I kind of like that guy's name. I wonder what his life was like. I think, da, 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 da. and they'd write fan fiction. But then the next generation would come along and go, oh, that must be how that was. And so it became a basis of teaching. So that's a real problem now. So he's talking here, hey, we don't, we don't devote ourselves to endless genealogies or myths. A much more modern example, because I'm guessing none of you wrote, broke out the book of Jubilees this, this week uh, or anything, but a much more modern example, a few years ago, and I should have looked up the date of publication, but it was, uh, there was a book called The Bible Code. And essentially, it was, uh, the, the tagline was, a mathematician um, somehow figured out uh, some um, algorithm or something uh, to break the Bible code. And, and because it, he broke the Bible code, he could prove that the Bible predicted JFK's assassination and World War II and Clinton becoming president and 9-11 and all this other stuff. And he sold a jillion books. 
and all of its myth and speculation, every bit of it. There is no Bible code. I mean, that's just you just got to know that. There is no mathematical formula for figuring this out. It's, it's, a, it's hogwash. It really is. But you can imagine a, an entire movement growing around this. This is the kind of thing that Timothy is facing in Ephesus. It's just speculation. The key word, again, speculation, he says at the end of verse 4, instead of stewardship. In other words, their focus was not on the gospel. Rather than stewardship from God that is by faith, they were promoting speculation. Speculations. They were distracted and, and had assigned an improper um, uh, order of magnitude of importance to, the, to a small, small issue. And again, I'll give you a, uh, just a simple example. From uh, Oftentimes this happens in the book of Revelation. People pick something out of the book of Revelation. Oh, here it is. Uh, one, of the, one, one of my personal favorites. Uh, the, the big number in the book of Revelation, not the number seven, but the other number, 666, even saying it, people are like, ooh, you know, 666. Somebody, somewhere, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six letters, six letters, six letters. Reagan's the Antichrist. There you go, right there. I mean, and they build this stuff around here. I mean, they, you know, they build up this line of thinking around, and you're like, what? They get focused on something that, and, and, and assign an inordinate amount of importance to something that, that doesn't really matter in that sense, right? I mean, it just, and, and obviously, you know, Ronald Reagan's not the Antichrist, just in case you're wondering. But, I mean, he's just not. So, I mean, just crazy stuff happens, right? They get distracted by this kind of sideshow stuff, and they forget what's really, really important. Uh, and I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. Uh, anybody ever been driving in traffic and in the rain with kids in the car? Oh, yeah. In fact, your blood pressure just went up 42 points thinking about it, much less doing it, right? And they're talking back there, and then they're starting firing questions at you. Hey, Dad, can you turn the AC down? Dad, can you turn the stereo on? Dad, hey, I want to know. Hey, Dad, hey, Dad. And then, because one's talking and the other's frustrated with that, what happens? Would you please be quiet? I don't want to be quiet. I don't want to. Dad, he's telling me to be quiet. Dad, he touched me. He's over the line, whatever. And you're like, and uh, from the front, with white knuckles, and gritted teeth, you say, would you please, for the love of all things good and right in the world, be quiet. I'm trying to concentrate. Because in that moment, if you turn around like you would normally do, what's going to happen? You're going to get yourself in a wreck. If you're not concentrating and giving your focus to what is most important, you will find yourself in a wreck. One more time, if you're not concentrating or, or giving yourself to, devoting yourself to what is most important, you will find yourself in a wreck. This is what was happening in Ephesus. They weren't concentrating and focusing on the gospel. They were focusing on these other things. And it kind of shakes out like this. This little, um, uh, I hope this is helpful to help people understand this next slide. They weren't concentrating on the gospel there at the top, and so their behavior followed that. Anytime you lose uh, a focus on the gospel, you can expect behavior to follow that. And because they were behaving differently than the gospel, they didn't confess and repent. What did they do instead? They self-justified. Well, I had to do this because this is the way I felt about blah, 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 on and on and on. And because they self-justified, or one of the uh, mechanisms for self-justification is creating these uh, reasons, these rationales, these 
speculations, if you will, for why they were acting the way that they were acting. And then they had to defend themselves against that. And this is what happens in verses 6 and 7. Look at there. In verse 6, certain persons, by swerving from these, getting out of the gospel, the flow of the gospel, if you will, and behavior and self-justification followed. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Anybody ever seen any of that on the internet? Uh, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So they want to be teachers, but they're so far off base that all they're doing is speculating and putting out defense strategies. And something popped up just this week, uh, a a lady um, who pastors a church up in the Chicago area named Bronley McClanahan wrote a book called Sex and the Single Christian, and she wrote this in the Washington Post this week. Part of figuring out how to live into the creative life of God is figuring out how to live into being yourself. Let's just pause right there because there's a comma. I'm pausing for effect and commentary. But that doesn't sound anything like deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him. That's not what that sounds like. That sounds very different. (laughs) She continues, and choosing the spiritual practices and disciplines that support your own discipleship. Not discipleship that's been handed down for a couple of thousand years through the church and faithful tradition and Bible. No, no, your own discipleship. And then this is the part because the book is Sex and the Single Christian. One of the most unfair things the Christian tradition has foisted on singles is the expectation that they would remain celibate, that is, refraining from sexual relationships. Now again, this lady wrote a whole book about this, and she'll come uh, speak to your church group about it and all this kind of thing. And she made it into the Washington Post under the heading of Christian. Here's the thing, though. This is this little cycle thing uh, right there on 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 the pages of the Washington Post. Because she's gotten away from the gospel, behavior has followed, justification for that behavior follows that, speculation about because that was one of the things later in the article. Well, Jesus was all about people's fulfillment. And don't you think you'd want us to be fulfilled? And then defense strategies for all of that. And on and on it could go. I mean, it just keeps going. Here's the thing. Whether it's in that particular area or in a different area, people speculate. And when they do, it does not lead to things. Instead, they have to define themselves differently than the Bible defines them. They often use distraction to get you looking a different way. And then they have to defend themselves publicly so that they're teaching and making these confident assertions, even though they're dead, dead wrong. And when you have speculation, it leads to something. It leads to um, what the Bible calls sickness. Look at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And just to be clear, how the law is supposed to be used is restraint of evil, the revelation that you need Jesus, because if I listen to the law and I figure out I can't do it, then I need somebody to rescue me, right? Um, and, And so... Uh, restraint of evil, revelation uh, of our need for Christ, and then uh, lastly, this this route or this road, this path. This this is the way that we normally walk. Now, as Christians, we don't uh, um, fulfill the law in our own lives. Jesus does this for us, but our lives look a lot like that, okay? Our lives look a lot like that. So he says, we, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's the right way to use the law. Verse 9, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just or for the righteous, uh, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers. This all sounds like the Ten Commandments, like 
you know, no other gods before me, honor your father, father and mother and so forth. It keeps going. For murderers, verse 10, the sexually immoral, the men who pra practice homosexuality, enslavers, those who put people into slavery, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And just so you can make a note with me here, when it says sound doctrine, my Bible has a little number up beside the word sound. Does your Bible have a little number like that? It's a, and it has a little footnote that goes somewhere. Like, can you read what the footnote says? What's the footnote say? Healthy. Healthy doctrine. It's a medical word. It's a sense of soundness in the sense, you know, like your body is sound. And this is a medical word, a healthy doctrine. You teach, you preach, you live in accordance with healthy doctrine. It promotes healthy things. If you live differently and promote differently, guess what? It's sickness. It's sickness. And when we, just to be clear, these things that, that Paul lists here, these things and many others that he didn't list, these are contrary to healthy or sound doctrine. And therefore, Listen to me, church. Sin is our sickness. And its effects, when we take it into our body, when we live it out, its effects, it leads to this. When sin is our sickness and it leads to these effects, we can expect to see stuff like this. Here's the question. So what's the remedy for that? He says it in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Just to be clear, the remedy for sin in our world and sickness in our world is not more law. I mean, we could add on a bunch of rules and blah, 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 but that wouldn't fix the problem. We could have a donkey or an elephant in the White House, and it would not fix our problem. It wouldn't. <clears throat> you could have this thing or not have this thing and it wouldn't fix your problem. You, you, I mean, in, in your um, parenting, it could go this way, or it could go that way, and it wouldn't fix it. What is the thing that absolutely, the only solution to that problem, it is in verse 11, the gospel of this blessed God of ours. The good news that Jesus looks at your world and looks at my world, looks at your life and looks at my life, and sees the darkness and sees the sin and sees the sickness and sees the brokenness and says, I'm going to do something about that because you cannot. And so he reaches down in his mercy and he grabs a hold of us and he lifts us out of that stuff. He rescues us. That is the only solution that is going to work. And man, do we need it? Yes. Does our country need it? Yes. Do our families need it? Yes. All of that is true. But we're not going to be able to add extra law and make this thing go right. Instead, the only cure is the rescue of Jesus, as he says, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So what, what, what then is the solution? What then is the solution? Back up, if you will, uh, <clears throat> to verse 4. Don't devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Uh, one thing that Paul says to us here, one principle, if you will, to, to hold on to in this, is that we have to look where it leads. We have to look where it leads. That's what he's talking about. Does this stuff lead to speculations, or does it lead to stewardship, a, a, a healthy, solid management of what God has given us? Uh, we were driving one time in Colorado. Um, we were on our way back from snow skiing, coming out of Summit County there, Keystone and Copper Mountain and that area. We're driving up. We had just gotten in the car. Everybody had just gotten settled in the little minivan. You know, it was finally warm in the car, and you kind of settled in, that kind of thing. We're up on the interstate. Roads are really icy. Things are pretty ugly. And um, all of a sudden, my dad says, uh, look at this. 
watch, boys, sit up, there's about to be a wreck. And of course, we're all in this perverse thing. We're like, ah, what? You know, we jumped up, pulled our earphones off, turned our Walkmans off, if you remember that. I mean, you're like, what? And sure enough, there were four dogs. I'm just as clearly as day, I remember four dogs had come up and were crossing the interstate on our side. They were going down into the median there and were getting ready to cross on the other side. And some dude hit his brakes on that ice just like that, two times around, and then kind of went off the edge and down the embankment and stuff. People stopped and were helping, and we couldn't stop. We're on the far side, and it's icy and whatever. And, and I'm like, wow, my dad called that, you know? And you, how did he know? He saw it, right? He saw what was going to happen. He saw what was coming. Paul is here, and he's saying, I'm seeing what's coming. If you focus on speculations rather than stewardship, I see what's coming. And what he charges us to do is to focus instead on, on, the, on the positive things, on the, on the important things, on the, on the gospel. Focus instead on that. Look where this other stuff leads, and then if it doesn't lead to the right place, then focus on what does lead to the right place. And I'll just say this. If it doesn't lead to a more faithful living with God, then it's not good and healthy doctrine. You can read blogs. You can read a book. Look, this kind of thing. Here's the question. Does it lead to a more faithful existence with God? When we get to the end of our lives and we stand before Jesus, what we want to hear him say, if you've been around church, you know this phrase. What we want to hear him say is, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to stand before Jesus and say, this is my life, Jesus. Here I am with all, all of this stuff. And we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. We won't get there if we're focused on stuff that leads us to speculations. If that stuff doesn't promote a, a, a more faithful living with God, then that's not stuff we need to be concentrating on. And I'll just give you some examples here, some hopefully diagnostic questions. Does your understanding of marriage, does, that, does your understanding or doctrine of marriage, does it paint a healthy picture for your kids and your neighbors? Well done, good and faithful servant. Does your understanding or doctrine of salvation, does it promote or, or, or lead you to share the gospel faithfully and urgently with people? Does your understanding or your doctrine of the return of Jesus, does it promote hope and urgency in you? Hope to get through the stuff that you're in. Hope to endure to the very end. And urgency, oh, Jesus, please come back. We want you. Like, does it prompt these kinds of things in you? Some people, they think about, uh, you know, the re return of Jesus is, you know, this, that, or the other. They got a big chart and whatever else. And they're like, oh, well, those poor people over there, they're not going to miss out at all. I mean, they're not, they're not going to catch this at all. The return of Jesus ought to spur us to, to be more faithful in our living. How about the... Your doctrine or your understanding of the church. Does your doctrine or the understanding of the church make it a can't-miss event or a, I can live without it? I can take it or I can leave it. How about your money? Does your understanding, your doctrine of money, does it allow you to invest in eternity? And how about your understanding of the Bible? Does your understanding of the Bible, does it prompt your reading of it? Look where it leads. Because if, you're, if it leads to something that's, not faithful to God, if it, lead, if it doesn't promote more faithfulness to him, then it's not healthy and it's not sound doctrine. Verse five is the next principle. 
The solution is to look where it leads. And then secondly, keep your eye on the target. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So just to be clear, the target, he says, he says in verse 3, I'm charging you to stay here and do this. And then he gives us the reason in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. Okay, the, the target, if you will, is love. God's kind of love, the transformation of our lives so that we're permeated with the love of God and then overflow into the world that desperately needs it with the love of God. And he says there's kind of three streams, if you will, that create this river that, that comes out of us. One is a pure heart. That's what he says, love that issues from a pure heart, a heart that's been ravished by and has been cleansed by God uh, and his love for us. And then secondly, a good conscience. The conscience in Paul's letters, particularly in these sets of letters, is such an important idea. Some, you know, Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your guide. Well, that's only true if the Holy Spirit is in your life. Sometimes your conscience can lead you to all sorts of places. Thus, Jeremiah says the heart, human heart is desperately sick and wicked, and who can understand it? In this case, though, the Holy Spirit often uses our conscience as a moral compass for you and for me. And so he says, live, if you will, with a good conscience, a clean conscience, one that is um, uh, clear, if you will, before God and man. And so it's not just that, uh, you know, I feel okay at night. It's that it, this works itself out in my relationships, in the way that I uh, connect with others. So a pure heart and a good or a clean conscience. And lastly, a sincere faith. The word that he uses for sincere there is an unhypocritical faith, a faith without hypocrisy, a legitimate faith, a not a wishy-washy faith, a faith that is not dependent upon circumstances, but one that's going to stick it out. Love that comes from there. The, the target um, for you and for me is to live a life so permeated with the love of God that we overflow to others and it comes through a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And lastly, the third portion of this solution is this. You have to remember that your behavior shows your belief. Look at verse 10 and again at 11. Whatever else is contrary to healthy or sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. So healthy doctrine leads to healthy action. Unhealthy doctrine leads to unhealthy action. See that? Okay, and that's how it goes. You cannot profess belief and then behave differently because your behavior actually tells you or, or belies to you, betrays you into what you really believe. And that's true in temptation in the smallest of things, and it's true in the big picture too. In temptation, what, the enemy will come along and he'll tempt you with something, and he'll say, hey, you know, this way is really an okay way to do it. And if I bite, if I buy that, if I go, yep, that's right, then what am I doing? I'm, I'm believing something that the enemy has said and not what God has said. And so here's the thing. If you consistently behave in an unhealthy manner, what that means is, what that's telling you is you are believing an unhealthy doctrine. And so it's not the only thing that has to change, but it is a crucial thing that has to change. You have to change your beliefs. You have to change your beliefs. And so I'll illustrate it this way. I need a, uh, a kiddo volunteer. Come on. You're very brave. You have no idea what you're getting into. Here, plop it right there. I got something for you and for me. I'm going to let you tell everybody your name. Okay, here, look, right here. Kara. Perfect. This is my friend Kara. You like donuts? Me too. <laughs> Don't tell my wife, okay? Here. She's right back there. Here. 
Why do you like them? I'm going to eat them with you. Is that okay? Why do they taste so good? Oh, they have lots of sugar. Yeah, you don't know. Okay. Hey, what else can you make with sugar? Candy, yeah. Cake, pie. I'm kind of hungry now. How about you? Good thing we got donuts. Does your mom have sugar on her, like on the counter or something at home? Do you know? Yeah. So, but she doesn't have a donut at home. She just has sugar, right? So you can have sugar and not have a donut. But you can't have a donut if you don't have sugar. Is that right? So just one more time, so I'm clear on this. You can have sugar and not have a donut, but you can't have donut if you don't have sugar, right? So church family, listen, this is really important. Really important. You can have sugar and not have a donut, but you can't have a donut if you don't have sugar. You can read the Bible, and plenty of people do, and not actually see transformation happen. You cannot have transformation if you don't put yourself in the Bible. You can have sugar and not have a donut. You can't have a donut if you don't have sugar. Yours with the whole thing. Awesome. Good job. I'm done saying, I'm done when I say this. That, that little illustration right there, so important for you and for me. Listen, because you and I have to be people in light of all of the things that are being said in the world today, all of the things that show up on our social, inter, uh, social media feeds and on the internet, and all, you and I have to be people who root ourselves right here, right here in the Bible. Because we can have sugar and not have a donut. We cannot have the kind of transformation that God wants to bring to our lives apart from the Bible. So we need to root ourselves in this. <clears throat> when, because our behavior shows what we actually believe, we change what we believe by spending time in his word. We must get into the Bible. We will not change without it. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask us to respond, okay?